Do you want to hear about great work happening in schools around the world? Just Schools are life-giving places that address feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student. This concept is founded on love and justice for each student. Dr. John Eckert digs deep into the current educational landscape with research, experience, and a good dose of humor and humility. Join us in the desire to do justice, love kindness, and walk with confident humility. Get inspired with stories of improvement in the profession that makes all others possible. Today, I'm excited for you to hear from Eric Ellison and Matt Thomas because they're partners of mine at the Baylor Center for School Leadership, and they've gotten to see a lot of the amazing work going on around the country with me. And today's podcast is on how we build education as a profession. So, I've wrestled with this question for years. Is teaching an occupation or is it a profession? Is it missional or is it professional? Is it exhausting or is it life-giving? And so, if we want to build a profession that our kids deserve, we have to really think through what that looks like as we bring people into the profession, as we develop them through the profession, as we help them take steps into leadership. These are key questions that we have to ask. And if we don't make this life-giving, we're going to continue to burn people out. We're going to continue to lose good people. And then we're not going to attract the kind of professionals who are there as missional professionals, which is ultimately what we want in the profession. So, I'm excited for you to hear this conversation. We're here today to talk about how we move from exhaustion to life-giving work. And so, there's no better people to do that with than Eric Ellison and Matt Thomas, my partners here at the Baylor Center for School Leadership, because we've seen a lot of schools that are doing this different ways. And so, we're going to spend a little time talking about that. So, Eric, tee us up. Yeah, it's interesting as we travel. We work with a lot of leaders and, and Matt in particular, you and I have talked about this quite a bit where we see a lot of leaders who are exhausted. Yeah. And and yeah. and the life-giving work of what we get to do in schools and in education have been pulled out of that. You had a little bit of a personal experience with that too. Tell us that little bit of story and then give us like, what was the switch for you personally that says, you know what, I'd rather do this life-giving work than the exhausting work. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Um, yeah, we have seen all kinds of models in Christian schools and public schools as well, where leaders really try to take on too much. And um, in probably a, I think a mindset of, of thinking that they are absolutely so critical to the success of the mission of that school, they throw themselves in not really understanding uh, not only the damage they're doing to themselves personally, physically, socially, emotionally, um, and spiritually, but also the lack of growth that they're preventing the organization or others within the organization from experiencing as well. And so, in my, you know, in, in my personal story, um, it was just that we had some gaps in leadership. And so, rather than have resources to be able to fill those gaps in ways that would have been beneficial to the, to the school, I, I assumed more roles than I should have. And in doing that, um, at the end of the day, um, I became, you know, what Ronald Heifetz talks about is that lone wolf leader and um, where they practice, he also calls it heroic leadership, where the individual leader cares for every individual within the organization, but has absolutely no 
um, expectation of being cared for himself or herself. And so operating with that mindset, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, is dangerous. And um, it leads to what, what some would call burnout. It, it, it certainly leads at, at the least to exhaustion. And I think in my own life, um, I could see the edges fraying. I could see things in, in my leadership that were being exposed, whether it was a, a short temper or whether it was not clear thinking or processes not being followed or individuals approaching me and saying, hey, you don't seem like you're having fun anymore. And those statements, those reflections became, I think, instrumental in me being able to step back and say, something has to change. Yeah. So, I would say I always am promoting collective leadership and that we want catalysts. And catalysts in science are substances that accelerate a reaction, but they're not the focus of it. They just speed it up without being used up. And so, what Matt's describing there is being used up, trying to be the focus, trying to be the leader, not in a way that it's a self-centered, egocentric kind of jerk mentality. It's just, hey, I think this needs to be done. And so, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it on my own. And so, I basically went into researching collective leadership because I realized I couldn't do all this stuff on my own. And so, I came to Baylor to work with Matt and and we brought Eric in. And in 2020, when everything shut down and we were in the process of trying to prove that this center could work and that we could build these programs, I came in and there wasn't support. It was just me and Matt trying to figure out how to support. I think that summer we worked with 400 schools who were pivoting to types of education they never had before. And I just took all that on myself, did 85 presentations for the center alone and ended up getting ulcers for the first time in my life. So, that wasn't from me. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, maybe it was working with Matt. (laughs) It was my first full year working with you. But really, it was what I think how I approach it is I, I do make it about others, but then I also just carry their weight along with me. It's kind of like when you go to prayer and, and you pray, and by the end of the time you're done praying, you've prayed for everybody, but you're exhausted uh, because you've taken all those burdens on instead of leaving them at the cross. And, and you know, it's interesting that you took it to the cross because I think what unintentionally happens is that we wrap up our identity in the work that we're doing. And for me, I was unable to separate who I was and what I was doing or from what I was doing. And because of that, blended way of doing life, which was dangerous, I I was incapable of stopping from doing things because then I felt like I wasn't who God created me to be. And it was really a warped perspective of not only Imago Dei, but the identity that I have in Christ and that my identity is not attached to my performance. It's it's all about the identity that Christ has given me, not that I've earned. Yeah, and yet we fight that all the time. I would, Eric, you got to share a little bit of your story on this because Eric's the best catalyst that I know. He collects talent. He's if you've read Liz Wiseman's Multipliers, he is a talent magnet. That's what he does, and he's always in the background doing things, sometimes out front, but he's always in the background if he's not out front, collecting people, putting people together as a catalyst should. So, share a little bit about why that's your approach. You always have a guy or a girl or a woman for things. Yeah. Well, and I think it is one of the things that, you you know, even though as you give me a lot of credit, you know me well enough that on the superhero side of things, when you're looking at that chart, I can be overly arrogant and be very focused on myself as well, right? So, it is, 
I think for me, it was, you know, is doing some really cool work, some what I viewed and what we viewed as really important work on the southwest side of Chicago, really amazing opportunity to take a lot of these emerging ideas that we had and say, hey, let's see if we can, you know, build a school or rebuild a school around these ideas. And and it was really important. I was a young principal um, and then diagnosed with you know, multiple myeloma that put me in the hospital for, you know, better parts of, of a year and a half. And so then the big question became, hey, how do we accomplish the mission? How do we accomplish the good work? And how do we do this without me being there? Um, and, and that was where I think I discovered for myself that through Strength Finders that my number one strength is Maximizer. And so then it was for me, I began to rely on that and become very thoughtful about how do I maximize the abilities, the talents, um, and in a lot of ways, catalyze the work of others. But then also as, as a leader, and, and I think my number two is strategic. And in that sense, be very strategic about how we work as a team from afar. So we started doing you know, online calls early on, like we were doing, you know, I guess it would have been Illuminate meetings, um, WebEx meetings back, you know, in 2008, 2009, that, you know, virtual meetings that I was doing from the hospital and they were doing from the school to keep the team on track, right? And so to do that. And um, I think amidst chaos, I had the opportunity to really realize that I'm not as essential as I, I, I think I am. But yet there is an essential nature of helping build others up to do the great work that they do and keep the team in a, mm-hmm. on a strategic track. Yeah. So, I mean, collective leadership, we define as work towards shared goals. And so what you just described is that it's not about us. It's about the work. We are essential in that we have to do work, but it's not contingent upon us. It's not our personality. It's not our position. Um, And so, I think when you look at the two charts that'll be in the show notes, you have the, here's how exhausting work looks. Here's here's what you think, do, and get when you do that. And then here's what life-giving work looks like. And so, when you look across that chart, some people think that anything worth doing requires a great deal of effort. And it feels that way. Everything feels heavy. Everything feels oppressive. You know, the work we get to do here with schools is totally life-giving. It's work. Absolutely. But we get to see cool things happening all over. I mean, Eric, you and I got to travel around. I don't know. I went to seven different sites and I think four or five of them were with you coming out of the pandemic. And last, we got to go into schools and see amazing things happen and learn with them. And then we get to do virtual calls with people all over. We have networks going on everywhere. And so, that could be seen as exhausting, but it's also the most essential things we do. Those become life-giving when we focus on others. And when we bring others into the process, it's no longer about us. And we're elevating others in ways that are self-serving and that it preserves us as we have deficiencies, as we, whether it's illness or uh, ways we approach stress or just things we don't have talent for. We've collected a lot of talent at the center with people that are doing work that we can't do. It, why, why, John, I know in my own life, I'm able to go back and look maybe with a different perspective why I tended to, you know, be inclined to think and act this way. Why do you think school leaders are wrestling with this life-giving work? Why do we settle for exhaustion or exhausting work? 
Well, I, I don't think it's settling. I think it's they feel like this is what they have to do. Yeah. And so, uh, Greg McCown has this great quote, burnout is not a badge of honor. I think that's what education has become. Like, who's working so hard that they're on the point of exhaustion? So, you, you get together and then that becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy that it has to be miserable because this is really hard work. There are a lot of needs. There are cascading traumas that are affecting our kids, that are affecting our families, that are affecting educators. And so, people aren't well. And so, then they think, oh, I'll get better by just working more. <laughs> I've been victim to that. If I get in a hole, I'm like, oh, I'll just work. I'll just work more. It's like, no, sometimes we have to step away and take care of ourselves first. So, I don't know if it's like settling almost feels like it's an intentional choice. Mm-hmm. I feel like people just think this is just the reality and this is all that. That's all there is. I don't know. Eric, what do you think? Well, now I'm, I wonder, Matt, right? Because you mentioned the lone wolf, mm-hmm. right? And we know the ecosystem analogy. One of my favorites you and I have talked about is Yellowstone when they reintroduced yeah. the wolf pack yeah. and how that had a cascading effect on, on the ecosystem of Yellowstone. And I wonder sometimes, you know, that's two things. And, 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 but the one I'm, I'm interested in for you is do we care? How much do we care? Cause the people that get to burnout, they care. And so how, yeah. how do we even place, you know, place some limits on how much do we care too much or are we caring in the wrong way? But then the second thing is like, are, are who are we doing it with? Mm-hmm. And I wonder like for you, that perspective of, hey, I was the lone wolf and now, you know, like I got a pack. Yeah. I mean, it partly in my mind, I felt like there was incompetence maybe around me, which is really a lie. There were competent people. I felt threatened by their competencies. And, um, and so that was, I think for me, one of the things that made life so exhausting, I had to prove myself and I probably wasn't able to be vulnerable and I wasn't able to really rest in those who are around me. But I agree. That's a, that's a great, perspective of the you know the wolf pack and seeing each other in a way that is complementary roles that are complementary around you and helping you succeed yeah because the lone wolf doesn't survive very long no right uh, it's so funny that we hold that out as a model like i don't want to be a lone wolf the whole power of the the wolf is in the wolf pack and so i feel like that's what we've been able to do at the center is to find good people doing work in all different kinds of schools and there's a confident humility that's an adam grant term from uh, think again where we have this hope we have this foundation that we know our identity is not in ourselves it's not in our performance and so we can root ourselves there and be confidently humble that we don't have to always be right we don't have to always have all the answers we in fact it's silly to think we could anybody that's been working in schools the last three years and thinks that they alone can be the leader they're probably not in education anymore (laughs) because there's the only way to do this is with others and we need the collective wisdom and expertise of others in this inclusive kind of form of leadership where we're going to benefit from that wisdom because without it, we're going to go under. Well, and John, one of the things I wonder about, because you talk about catalysts in this, in that, you know, you mentioned the confident humility, um, but then you also point out that that work is about others. It's in teams, right? And then that's the life-giving. And uh, you go back to one of your earlier books where you talk about the crab bucket effect oh, in yeah. education, right? And you, you consistently will talk about like educators, you don't yeah. need a lid right. to the top of the crab bucket because they just pulled each other back down, right? So, like, how do we 
get excited for. I think one of the things too is invite people into the cool work or be invited into somebody's space and and celebrate the hard work and the good work that they're doing. Um, I think we can be overly judgmental, but like talk about that crab bucket effect and what you've learned as someone who's become in a sense, you know, trying to, you know, give life, but then receive life. Mm. Um, from from yeah. a fellow educators. Yeah. So Dan Duke coined that term. He's a sociologist that looked in and, and saw that. And it happens across other organizations, but schools are particularly bad about it. And I, I think one of the places you can check yourself on this is venting. <laughs> when you start talking about other people, um, why are you talking about them? Uh, so some people are like, oh, I have to vent so I feel better. Well, if you're venting about that person because you're being that crab dragging the other person down. So Matt, you know, Matt, he's just, he's he's a great guy to vent to because he'll always agree with me when I say something negative about Eric. And so then I agree with Matt. Matt agrees with me. We feel good because we've got this bond because we're like, yep, Eric's an idiot. And uh, we're both justified in our righteous anger toward him. Well, you know what I did there was I dragged myself down. I solidified those negative feelings in me. And then I did the same thing for Matt. Like that is toxic to any team to do that. So when you see yourself doing that or someone else does that to you, like call them on it. Now in a team, there are going to be things that don't work well. And you're going to have to talk to each other about, hey, this isn't working very well. And like, how do we strategize? Because John really doesn't get it. So I'm sure Matt and Eric are like, hey, you know, we really need John to do this. How do we get him to do that? That's positive because you're looking for something that's a solution. And then we're going to celebrate the leadership of others. So that's the other side. The flip side of venting negatively is venting positively. How do you celebrate the good work other people are doing when they're not around? Because that may or may not get back to them, but that that makes the people that are hearing like, I want to work with that person because they're excited about the work other people are doing. And so we're constantly, all my books, they're always highlighting the good things that other teachers are doing, other leaders are doing. The, anything about me is typically bad in my books. There are things that I screwed up. Um, so if you read them with that lens, you're going to be like, why would I listen to anything this guy has to say? But I know a lot of really great educators. And so I highlight them. So I, that's one that's one way to, a couple ways to do that. And I think we've tried to adopt that at the center. I mean, you can look at people that we work with, people that we highlight, whether they're fellows or scholars and the residential and non-residential scholars, the people that we work with, organizations, it's not about us. And I think when we highlight the good work that's being done outside of even our own work, that breathes life into what we're doing. And um, and, and by the way, I didn't know, John, we were going to actually use real scenarios, uh, you know, in this podcast. So, uh, they, those of you who heard what John was talking, that was from, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice that they talk about me right in front of my face. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. So, Matt, go back to to a little bit of what you shared about your personal story. Like, where are you seeing, you know, from that, right? It's easy to talk about the burnout and the exhausting work. Where are you seeing joy in schools and in the work right now that we see in education? You know, I've had the privilege of being in a lot of schools in the time that I've been here at Baylor. And um, I think what brings me the most joy is when top administrators are inviting teachers into conversations that teachers do not feel privileged to be a part of. And you see a, a light in their eye where they 
are considered, where they're known, where they're seen, and um, where they're humanizing that experience between colleagues. And they're seeing each other less um, of you work for me and more of we are co-laborers together. I just, I, I cannot tell you how many teachers and um, emerging leaders are are experiencing a newfound joy because of their bosses really um, giving them uh, a place at the table or a seat at the table. Well, and if you want to see something joyful, come the last two weeks of June on the campus and see the master's students that are coming from all over the country, all different kinds of schools for that intensive time. I mean, we live life together and the things that get shared in dorm rooms at top golf, at meals during class. I mean, it's eight hours a day of intense reading. I think between Matt's class and my class, they probably read uh, 50 different authors. And so they come in ready to do the hard scholarly work, to dig into the practical work, but the richness is in the range of perspectives that they bring and the humanity that they bring into Mm -hmm. that classroom. And it is as close a representation of the body of Christ in a professional setting as I've seen. And they're my favorite 10 days of the year professionally every summer. And so it's just a huge blessing to do that because we get to bring those schools here and get to see it in this, like, this is what the profession should be. Well, I think one of the things that as you, as you even talk about that, and I've learned from both of you guys is the sense of you can bring people together to learn, to do school, to do those types of things. But you mentioned top golf. there's church, yeah. there's at home barbecues, yeah. there's all this extra stuff. And I've worked those last two summers with you <laughs> yes, guys yeah. and it is exhausting, <laughs> but that sense of inviting people in being hospitable and caring for others, but then also caring with them mm-hmm. is something that I've you know, been blessed to be a part of, but then also would wonder like, how do we take that spirit Without where we couldn't do that all year round. That's right. But then how do you take that spirit and and invite other people to create schools and communities where they're caring with each other, caring for each other while they're doing the really cool work of learning together? Well, I would just say, Matt, feel free to add on to this, but what I've seen is sometimes you think carrying others' burdens weighs you down more. But there's something freeing about carrying others' burdens. And that's what happens. We're doing fun stuff for sure. But the powerful things where people are tearing up and and and, and having breakthroughs, like spiritual breakthroughs and insights into their life and, and work life, that is this life-giving energy that in sharing our brokenness, we actually find a levity to it that is freeing, that it's no longer ours. And even as it gets unloaded onto someone else, it's not additional weight on them. It's freeing because now we have this bond. We have this connection. We can do that in schools. We have the advantage of making it intensive and being able to have people in home in our homes and eat with them and kind of live life in that time. But we do that so that they go out and can go do that in their, in their own schools and bring that life there. It's a little jarring when they go back and other people haven't participated in that, but it's like, find the people who need it find the people who want it and invite them in. You can't force it, but it's got to be invitational. So, yeah, I think that's Galatians 6, 1, you who are spiritual, bear the burdens of others. And I, I don't think that that's an option. I think that is a call for every believer 
in particular in schools for us to bear the burdens of others. And it's a joy to do that. Paul really unpacks that throughout Galatians chapter six, right? But I, I just read an article this week on Gospel Coalition about stop hiding your burdens. They're meant to be shared. And when we work within, I think, Eric, going back to your question just a second ago, what brings me joy is seeing communities where people are free to be vulnerable, and then that leads to greater trust being experienced. And, and that happens not just with peers, but also hierarchically. It's, it's actually people understanding that they can be real and not fear the repercussions of that transparency. Yeah. And, and when you go back into schools, there are power dynamics there. They, of have, to be, they have to be careful of. We yeah. have that egalitarian thing when we're all students, we're all in community and it, it is a different dynamic, but there is an awareness to that. But I think we are hopefully preparing leaders that are savvy enough to know how to do that because there are power dynamics in all, in all relationships. And so, knowing how to do that in a way that honors the way they were created mm-hmm. and their creator and the way they honor the created beings that they serve alongside, that's where we all flourish together when we do that. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Eric, Matt, and I certainly do not have all the answers, but we've seen a lot of ideas out there that are pushing us toward life-giving work. And I hope if you're an educator, you appreciate the fact that we have meaningful work to do every day in the profession that makes all others possible. Have a great rest of the week. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Baylor Center for School Leadership. Watch for Dr. John Eckert's first book in the series starting in January 2023.